Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey, everyone. Today's interview was a great one with one of Garrett's former strength coaches, Devin McConnell. He's now worked, he's in his third season in the NHL, two years with the New Jersey Devils, and this is his first year with the Arizona Coyotes. Another really knowledgeable guest and someone that obviously we're a little more comfortable with because Garrett spent a year working with him. We know a little bit more about his story. So I enjoy these types of interviews because you get to know someone that you already think you know you get to know them on a deeper level and understand you know why they do some of the things they do garrett what do you think about today's interview yeah i thought it was great and obviously i know dev and uh just a very intelligent person but i think that he's worked really hard to get get that way i remember uh you know at my time at lowell he never he, he didn't not have a book in his hand you'd see him walking around campus and he was carrying a book whether he was sitting down on a bench reading it or you'd walk into the gym in the morning and he was reading a book before he even got there. So he's always gaining knowledge. Uh, we talk about the end, but he wrote his own book, uh, Intent, which is, has a really cool concept. I'll let him explain that. You'll have to listen to it. Um, but just super knowledgeable and, you know, in a field that drastically affects uh, both of our lives in a positive way. And uh, we talk about the personalities and type of people that strength and conditioning coaches are. And they're, they're great ones from, from my experience. So super grateful that Dev could come on and uh, he was able to take time out of his busy schedule uh, and, and it was a lot of fun. I think one of my favorite takeaways from the interview today was uh, the power of admitting that you don't know everything. I think a lot of times people get into these positions of power, you know, they're a coach, they're a manager, whatever it may be, and they always want to be right. They always need to think that they have the answers. And in my experience, I actually respect and trust the opinion much more of someone who admits when they're wrong and tells you, you know, I don't know the answer to that. Let's, let's research it. Let's find out the answer. And strength coaches definitely are people who need to do that because if you stick to the old ways that you've been doing the whole time, you know, you're going to fall behind technology and all the research is changing things so quickly these days that uh, I think it's really cool how much information there is out there. And I think it's really cool when someone who's been doing it for a long time and is at the national hockey league level, the best level there is, can say that, you know, he doesn't have all the answers. Yeah. I like that you said you gain respect, but I think that it just develops the relationship more too. When someone is able to admit when they're wrong, um, it's easier to have a personal connection with someone like that because you almost know that they're not going to steer you in the right direction, right? Instead of continuing to say, no, this is how it should be done. Trust me. I know, I know. Instead of just admitting like, Hey, like I don't have enough information on this topic, let me read more or ask my resources more. And then we can get to the bottom of whatever the question may be. So uh, from my experience, really people that admit when they're wrong, it just, I think it helps you build a stronger relationship. Yeah. It proves that they have your best interest at heart for sure. Let's kick it on over to Devin McConnell. Today's guest is an author and a friend of the podcast. He earned his undergraduate degree in exercise science from Fitchburg State College while also playing on the hockey team. He started his career as a sports performance coach at Stanford University before becoming the head of hockey performance at UMass Lowell for eight years. He spent two years with the New Jersey Devils as the director of performance science and reconditioning and is now in his first year with the Arizona Coyotes. Thank you for joining the podcast, Devin McConnell. Thanks, guys. I appreciate you having me. Dev, how are you and how has uh, your transition to Arizona been? I'm doing well. I'm doing very well. It's, um, yeah, it's been 
the, the transition's been good. You know, timing was interesting. Middle of a global pandemic, decided to take a new job and move the family across the country. So there were certainly some challenges around that, but uh, but overall, it's been it's been a good first year here in Arizona. Yeah, you mentioned the pandemic, and uh, as a strength coach. There was a, a different off-season and preseason preparation vibe, right? Like all your players had limited access to gyms and ice. Uh, how did you treat that, and how is this summer different trying to coach your players, you know, remotely? Yeah, it was a, it was a, a big challenge, um, unique challenge for everybody. You know, I was for most of that time I was still um, with the New Jersey Devils, so um, I can kind of speak to what we did, and and this is pretty similar across the league. Um, but you know, at first, you know, really started out like we didn't even know, like everybody didn't really know what the timeline of anything was going to be. We didn't know if we were going to be even playing. We ended up not um, basically finishing our season. We weren't in uh, in the playoffs. So, you know, in hindsight, when things kind of were put on hold, uh, our season was done. But we didn't know that at the time. So it was trying to figure out ways to help our guys, you know, continue to train to potentially come back and start skating. Um, you know, if we were going to play, so it was, and, and everybody was, you know, quarantined. Right. So they were in, you know, some guys might've had, you know, at home with the home gym, it was pretty good. Other guys might've been in a, in a condo with literally no equipment. And so there's a lot of challenge around that and our staff trying to put workouts together and do things for, you know, each guy individually where they were and what they could do. And then, that expanded out to, you know, when we found out we weren't going to be in the playoffs and now there was going to be an expanded um, off season. It was trying to figure out, okay, like, what does that look like? Because usually in strength and conditioning, you kind of work backwards from an end date, you know, okay, if camp's going to start on this day, I've got whatever, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, whatever it is. And I can start to plug in where we're going to do what we didn't know what, what that timeline was going to be. It was a moving target. We had no idea when we were going to start up. So, the next challenge was trying to develop programs for our players remotely without really knowing when and where they were going to finalize. Uh, and then that transitioned eventually to um, being allowed to do some in-person work uh, while still in New Jersey later in the, you know, the off season into the fall, I guess, and um, starting to look a little bit more normal as far as what training looked like um, and having some players in, but then, the challenge around, you know, quarantine rules. And if a player came into town and they had to, you know, quarantine for a week or whatever it was, and if they left, it was the same thing. And then at that point, um, you know, that's, that's sort of where I transitioned and, and took the new role in, in Arizona and uh, kind of switched over. And by the time I got to, to the Coyotes, you know, we basically had a, at that point in time, um, almost all of our players were in town and, and in training. And it was uh, kind of a little bit more back to normal from that perspective. Yeah, you, you've been doing this for a really long time and you talk about building backwards and creating those phases so that the players start to ramp it up before the season begins. So I'm curious as to like, what did those phases look like throughout the pandemic and how much did they really change? You know, like when the season was over, you knew things weren't going to start up for a while. So you're prob probably more focused on strength and, uh, you know, building muscle mass or whatever, probably different for a few players. But when did you start to realize, right, we need to ramp it up? Did you get an indication on when, you know, things might come up or was it really just kind of working on your toes? Yeah. So the, the beginning part was just on your toes. It was, and again, it was with the general plan that we were going to continue playing. So it was really just keeping guys sort of fit and as a, as conditioned as possible so that when we got back on the ice, they weren't super far behind from a conditioning standpoint. 
Um, that transition then when we found out, okay, we're not going to be in the playoffs. This is the actual off season, you know, and then the, the way that we kind of looked at it um, with our group in New Jersey was, you know, if we typically would have, um, you know, eight weeks, um, uh, eight to 10 weeks of an, 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 uh, a regular off season, we would break that up and it would, you know, it would kind of follow, like you talked about beginning, you know, a couple phases would be more kind of strength development and then middle phases might be more kind of power speed development. And then late phase would be a little bit more conditioning heavy and kind of prepare for the demands of, of training camp. Um, so we, we kind of laid that out. Um, but we obviously didn't know what the end stage would be. So what we ended up doing was sort of doubling that. So we, we went through, you know, eight or 10 weeks um, and, and it was a moving target that we'd find out, we'd hear rumors that there was going to be a start date and then that would get pushed back a little bit and that would get pushed back a little bit. And so we kind of got to the end of that traditional sort of eight to 10 week offseason program. And we had a little bit better idea now, okay, we still have more time, but now we know it's going to be another eight weeks um, at least. And so we basically just took that eight to 10 week program and we doubled it. And so we, the athletes, you know, we gave everybody kind of a week off and then we came back and we kind of started from scratch again. And we went back through some of those phases. And then as we got closer to the end, you know, the start dates started to get narrowed down at least a little bit. So we could kind of tailor that a little bit more, but then even to that point, um, you know, it was, it was sort of, uh, a little bit of limbo still towards the end and all of a sudden boom okay now we know what date it is and now we have to sort of adjust and that actually came up a little quicker than we expected so we had to sort of be on our toes so to speak to to adjust so but it's just everybody was going through the same thing and it was just about flexibility and and uh, everyone kind of understood what was going on so we did the best we could I know in college when guys go home they rely on some of their their old trainers you know the guys they grew up training with uh how often does that happen at the national hockey league level is most of the team you know sticking with you because you are their team trainer or do a lot of the guys have different people back home yeah i'd say it's even more so than in college uh, you know in, in my experience uh even when guys would go home uh you know from umass Lowell where i was like they may have had um their trainer their guy that they worked with and, and a few guys would go and start working off of their program but a lot of our guys would even if they were at home, they would work off of our training program because they were going to come back and we would spend time in the summer together. And in the NHL, it's almost entirely um, their guys are off on their own uh, with their own guy. You know, it, depending on the market, depending on the situation, you may have a few guys that stick in town or that are, you know, older vets that, you know, own a home in town. And so they stay there, their families are there, but a lot more uh, often players will go off and they'll train with their guys. So it's really important for, us and and in my role uh as a high for the high performance director to communicate with their trainer their strength coach and make sure that that goals are aligned and that you know they know what we're looking for and and we're really it's a uh, we try to facilitate communication and sharing of information so that everybody can be on the same page yeah it's super interesting and <clears throat> going back to the very beginning uh, you're from Lake Stevens Washington a state that is well known for its green forest and rain so what sparked your interest in hockey yeah, it's funny. Um, very, I mean, it's, it's different now. And now with the, the NHL team coming in, uh, hockey's exploding there. But, you know, when I grew, grew up, uh, there were, you know, basically two minor hockey associations uh, in the greater Seattle area and maybe four altogether in the entire state. Very, very little hockey. Um, I distinctly remember I was uh, in kindergarten, kindergarten or first grade. And 
you know, you, you have a, a cubby in your classroom and you get, you know, mail or you get, you know, your stuff you're going to bring home, your pictures you made, you know, teacher puts it in there. And in my cubby was a flyer for learn to play hockey. And I had never really played uh, my, my parents, you know, nobody in my family had played hockey. My dad, you know, played street hockey or whatever. So I would play street hockey with him and stuff as just a little kid, but there's no hockey experience. But I remember coming home with this flyer and saying, Hey, I want to, I want to do this. This sounds really fun. And nobody else I knew got the flyer or brought it home or started playing hockey. So somehow I ended up with this and uh, who knows? I don't know, but that's kind of how it started. It was literally a, a learn to play. It was like, $15 and you got all the equipment and you, it was like 10 sessions and you learned to skate and learn to play. And, and I absolutely fell in love with it. So um, yeah, not, there wasn't much hockey growing up. Uh, most of, you know, once I was uh, grew up a little bit and, and got better and started playing on the travel teams and stuff, like we basically spent my entire childhood in, in, you know, basically British Columbia, uh, a couple hours North in Vancouver and every weekend was playing games up there. Cause that's obviously where all the hockey was, but, um, yeah, that's kind of how we started. That's pretty crazy to think how one little flyer could have affected not only your entire life, but also your families. You know, they're spending weekends hours away up in BC, and uh, it's really cool to hear, actually. Um, but your junior hockey career had some bumps, and uh, you were cut from teams that you thought you had a good chance of making and almost led to quitting. So what led to your decision to keep playing and pursue that passion? Yeah, I got I got cut probably more than I made teams uh, growing up. Um, so the, the, I mean, what led me to keep playing is I just, I love the game. I love the game. I still love the game. I still love to play. Um, you know, just an absolute passion of mine since I was probably first put the skates on when I was, you know, six years old, but, um, the, the story you reference, I remember, um, maybe my third year of junior. So I'd left, I'd left home, uh, senior year of high school to start playing junior played, uh, for junior B team in Spokane, Washington, the Spokane Braves. And um, I had gone to uh, main camp in the BCHL, Junior A League in uh, Merritt that year and was really close to making the team. Um, didn't make the team. And they basically sent me sent me there and, you know, said, hey, go have a good year. And, you know, we're watching you, whatever. So I had this expectation that, you know, um, that I was, okay, not quite there, but uh, I'm, you know, I'm on the radar and pretty close. Uh, so the next year that the head coach from Merritt ended up uh, changing teams and he went to, I believe he, he was in Vernon in the BCHL. And I got an invite to go to camp there. I was like, okay, you know, I'm going in, this is my spot. You know, coach loved me last year. I had a good year, first year junior, here we go. And um, got cut, got cut like early in camp. Didn't even make it like late. Like I had played exhibition games in Merritt the year before and, I got cut like third day in training camp and I was just, I was floored. I had, I thought I was, I thought it was on the team essentially. And the coach was like, yeah, you know, we just needed you to come in here and kind of like just take over and be the man and just wasn't there. So, uh, you know, good luck. And I was like, good luck. I, I don't have anywhere to go. I don't have anywhere to play. This what, this was the plan. Like I, there wasn't a backup plan. I was, I think I was 19 and it was like, what am I going to do? I, and I was, close to quitting, not because I wanted to quit because I didn't, like, I had nowhere to go. I had nowhere to play. Um, ended up going back to Spokane, um, was fortunate enough to, you know, that they essentially took me back and, um, played there, uh, for about half the season. 
and then uh, managed to get uh, you know basically called up to uh, to Bozeman Ice Dogs, which at the time was in the the America West Junior Hockey League, which soon after merged with the the NAHL, um, but um, it was one of the two uh, two or three junior A leagues in the states at the time. And went up there and uh, played the rest of the year there, and it was it was awesome. Uh, kind of dream come true getting to play there and great experience and went home in the summer and came back to training camp 20 year old year coming back last year and uh go to camp and just out there with the guys having fun and um i kind of tweaked my hamstring or something training so i wasn't like 100 percent, but no big deal just out with the boys you know going through camp and maybe we'll pick up a couple good players and like third day camp i get called in the coach's office he's like yeah we're gonna let you go like we're gonna go in a different direction I'm like, what are you, what are you talking about? Like I was backup goalie last year, like starting guy, got a college gig. Like I'm, I'm your number one goalie. He's like, no, we're nope. So good luck. It was like two years in a row. I had no, there was no other plan. I wasn't like, there wasn't a, there wasn't another plan there. Um, but managed to find a spot on a team in St. Louis, a junior B team in St. Louis. And played my last year juniors there and, you know, certainly not how I, I drew it up. Um, but that worked out really well for me because that's where I, you know, basically got some uh, college offers, division three offers and, and found a, a home at a school in, in New England, Fitchburg state college, which was, you know, couldn't have been a better home for me uh, sort of personally. And, um, and, you know, in hindsight, kind of looking back like a, a big piece of where I am today, just from some connections and, location and people. And so, yeah, a lot of bumps along the road, but, um, you know, try to look at, I try to look at things as, um, opportunities, not obstacles, right. Whenever there's a challenge that falls in front of you, it's kind of, you can decide which one it's going to be. Is it going to be something that is going to stop you and you can't get around it? Or is it going to be some way you're going to find, find out that it's an opportunity in some way. And so that's, uh, that was kind of the hockey path, uh, through, through there and through college and, that's uh, helped me get to where I am today. Yeah, for sure. And it's uh, funny that you mentioned uh, it's not how you drew it up. And one of my roommates back at LIU, it was both our, or it was my his fourth year and my fifth year, obviously in school. And uh, we were kind of looking back and you know how you tell the younger guys, like your, your four years, five years, whatever it is, go by really fast. And some guys aren't going to make it, you know, through their four years, or this may be your last college game. Like you have no idea. And we both talked about that unless you're, you know, a very high end top guy or a good player, your college path or uh, what happens to you in college is probably not how you drew it up. Uh, but as you just mentioned, it, it makes you who you are today. Uh, and, and obviously I'm very fortunate for everything that I've gone through and the people and the relationships that I've uh, acquired through my time too. And you kind of talked about it a little, but um, in college too, at, at times you played second fiddle or second fiddle, um, and as can, we, we both can attest in the moment, it's a struggle, but in hindsight, what are the biggest benefits do you think are, or that come from being a second string goalie? Yeah. I mean, I, it is right. It's a, it's a challenge. It's um, it's always a, as a competitor, as an, you know, as an athlete, like um, you have to have egos, not the right word, but like, you got to believe in yourself. And when you're in that situation and, especially, you know, it's one thing if you're in a situation as like a, a first year goalie or something. And, and uh, the other guy is, you know, if it's a college situation, you're a freshman and the other guy is a, a senior and he's established like, okay, like I, I get it. I'm here to work and learn. It's a whole nother situation when, you know, you're essentially peers and things like that and can be kind of a, a, 
a kick in the ass, so to speak. But I think from a life perspective, like those, again, those opportunities to be in that second seat and have to have to learn how to have to learn how to contribute in some way to the group. Um, it's like, it's like being a play, you know, it's like being a player that uh, if coaches will tell you, like, if you're having an off game, like the puck's just not, you know, not going in for you or, you know, whatever it is that you usually do, it's not happening. Like good players find other ways to, to contribute. You know, maybe you're just not, you're not going to get on the score sheet tonight, but block some shots, like, right. Like find a way. Same thing as a, as a backup goalie, like, okay, you're on the bench, you're working the door, like not where you want to be, maybe not where you think you should be, but you can decide again, like, is this an obstacle and I'm going to, you know, bitch and moan about it? Um, or is this an opportunity? And am I, am I here for the team? And if so, like, how can I help the team get better? How can I help us win? How can I find us something? What, you know, who knows you bring energy, um, you make sure that TV timeouts, you know, if you're in that situation, you got the water bottle set up and ready for the starting guy when he comes over, like whatever it is, like find a way to help your group, help your team. Um, and again, those are differentiators that serve you, that you learn about. And depending on which road you decide to take, you know, help you down the road when, um, you know, life comes at you and you're in another type of situation that's probably much more, um, meaningful than, you know, a hockey game. Right. Um, but those are the, the lessons that you learn early on, hopefully. Yeah. And I learned too, from going through it, that when you, you know, you're that positive guy that brings a good energy at, when you get your opportunity, uh, the team is that much more there for you. And they genuinely care about your success because when things aren't going well for you, you're still there and still genuinely care about uh, the team's overall success versus individual success. Yeah, without question. I think that those are moments that, I mean, I had a, a seminal moment like that in my last, my last junior game. So I was playing for that team in St. Louis, St. Louis Junior Blues, and we were really good. Uh, we were in the national championship game or we were, we were in the national championship tournament and we had been like a, me and our, our other goalie, Derek Sesney had been kind of a one, a one B basically rotated all year long. Um, but I was, you know, I was, a, I mean, at that time I was literally 21 years old. I think I was the second oldest kid in USA junior hockey at the time. Um, and, you know, he was a, a he was younger, um, really a goalie, but we'd gone back and forth all year and had a great partnership, great relationship. And we get in the tournament um, and the same kind of thing. We're back and forth, but I'm kind of, I'm pegged to be the starting goalie, like the way we're, you know, set up at the end. Well, he plays like whatever. He plays the first game. We win. I play the second game. We actually lose. And it was like, that team was ridiculous that year. I think it was our third loss all season. And all of a sudden, and I didn't play poorly or anything, just we lost. And we go back to him the next night and we win. And that puts us into the national championship game. It's my, it's my start. And I'm the older guy. I'm veteran, you know, whatever, like that's my start. And coach pulls us in like the night before and says, Hey, like, we're going to go with Derek. Like he's just a little bit hotter. And um, there we go. And it was, again, it was one of those moments. Like I could be really pissed off. Like this is not only the national championship game. It's my last game of junior hockey. Like I should be the guy here. Um, like we didn't lose cause I was bad. Like, but I had to choose, like, am I going to bitch and moan or am I going to be there for the team? And I was just like, awesome. Let's go, man. Like you're going to fucking kill it. And we're going to win this thing. And I'm hundred percent behind you. And 
I was on the bench for that game. And I was, I just remember being thinking to myself, like, just, just be the biggest cheerleader. Like, just do what, again, just, we need energy. We need whatever, like, just do anything to help us win this game and win the trophy. And we ended up winning. I don't know. We, we blew out the other team. It was like seven, nothing or something. And uh, they coaches put me in for like the last 10 minutes. Um, so I could finish, you know, finish my career on the ice and, um, and it was just awesome. And the guys were, I just remember like, so happy. We were all so happy because we won the national championship, but like guys were really happy for me because it was obviously like, it was an obvious situation of like, Oh, like this is a tough spot, but I was, I made a point to be a really good teammate and guys appreciated that. You know what I mean? Um, so again, like seminal moment for me to kind of make a decision, which way you're going to go and, and you get the, the support of your teammates, you know, you earn it after that. So leaving junior hockey to be a student athlete is a big step in that transition to life after sports. When did you know that a career in strength and conditioning was your goal? Uh, was it going into school or how did you get started in the field? Yeah, it, it certainly wasn't going into school. In fact, I didn't even know the field existed going in. Um, again, sort of fortuitous, like I ended up at, I ended up at Fitchburg State College 100% because it was the best opportunity for me to play as a goaltender right away. Like just looking at, at the teams that I was talking to, looking at the rosters, like there was a couple different spots that I could go. And that team just, you know, basically they had a senior goalie graduate. Um, their freshman goalie had played a little bit, um, but not a ton. Um, and they had a, you know, a, basically a, a junior or whatever that had never played and is, you know, kind of the, the number three guy. And that was the role. So I knew that I, there was a chance to play right away. That's why I went to Fitchburg. Like it had nothing to do with school. They happened to have an exercise science program. And I happened to be somewhat interested in physical therapy um, because the year prior I was, I was banged up and ended up in PT and sort of realized, Oh, like I really kind of enjoy the learning about the human body and the process. And I'd always liked training. So there was some of that, but I didn't know strength and conditioning was even a thing. So I went to Fitchburg to play. And then I was like, Oh, exercise science. I kind of think I want to be a physical therapist. I'll start doing that. And it really wasn't until I, um, did an internship for Mike Boyle, uh, my, after my junior year that I realized that a, this was a job that was like a position. It was a career that you could have. We didn't have a coach at Fitchburg at the time. It was a small school. And that B, I really liked it and was pretty good at it. So it was, it was an interesting path that I, I sort of didn't even know that I wanted to do this until, um, you know, like I said, like sophomore, junior year of college, um, when I started to realize that I was much more interested in working with healthy athletes than, you know, injured people in a, in a rehab setting. It's funny because when we did the interview with Mike Bull, he talked about how you just sent him an email uh, and was like, hey, can I come basically shadow and watch? And he's like, Dev McConnell, Fitchburg State, don't really a hockey player. Like, cool. Yeah, come on in. Uh, and he said that you went in there and there was other people that had been in watching that just kind of observe. And he said that you were taking notes and asking all these great questions. And he was kind of like, who the hell is this kid? Um, and then, you know, just kind of caught his attention, and his interest. And uh, I believe he said that he helped you get your first job. So what has he done for your career and really strength and conditioning as a whole? Yeah. Uh, I mean, Mike's done for me personally, everything for my, he didn't just help me get one job. Like he's helped me get every job that I've had that he's, he's made phone calls. And the thing about uh, Mike for people, you know, listeners that don't know kind of who he is like, so he's, he's, one of the pioneers of strength and conditioning. Um, he was one of the first um, 
really the first people to kind of make that a, a job. Like he started in the eighties when there was only a couple people with that role or title in sports and nobody, you know, wasn't the thing. Um, and so he kind of, in some ways like created the field or, or helped to develop the field at least. Um, and then specifically he has had a huge impact in hockey. So Mike worked for a long, long time at Boston university, which is a, a, a college hockey powerhouse. Um, and then also worked in the national hockey league with the Bruins, the Boston Bruins. And so he had, I mean, the list of players that he's trained and now, um, you know, the list of players that he's trained, who he trains their kids and, and things like that is like, exceptional like his impact in ice hockey at the college and professional level um is is massive so working for mike getting to know mike uh sort of earning his respect um was super influential not just from an education standpoint and like learning how to coach and learning how to do strength and conditioning um but he knows everybody in he knows everybody in hockey so um when there's a, a hockey position um he's the person that, you know, GMs call that college ADs call, um, when they're looking for people for, you know, for strength and conditioning coach. So super influential, uh, to me, um, continues to be, continues to be a mentor and a friend to me. And then to the field, I mean, he's, again, he was sort of one of the, the early pioneers and is still to this day. I mean, um, somebody that really is a progressive thinker and really driving, um, driving the field forward in a lot of ways. One of the things that stuck out to me with our interview with Mike was how when he got started, he didn't want NHL players. He wanted guys who were really hungry and they were in the minor leagues and they would be willing to try this, you know, new style of training that he was doing. So in your career, have you ever had to, you know, fight with an athlete about the program? And if so, how do you kind of handle showing them that, you know, this is going to help your performance in your sport, even though, you know, it may not feel like it in the gym. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting parallel because, um, so my time at, at UMass Lowell and Garrett can attest to this, you know, the, the type of people that the coaches at Lowell recruit are in my entire time there. I mean, I, there's nobody that wasn't a high character person. Like they, they recruited character people. They also recruited by, sort of necessity a lot of players that were sort of chip on their shoulder typically a little bit older like we didn't have you know it wasn't a program that got first round draft pick you know 17 year old kids these were we almost always had older kids that played a little bit more junior hockey a lot of kids a lot of guys that had a little chip on their shoulder and were passed over other places um so for me as a strength coach it was an absolute ideal situation because you had a, a group of, of good people who um, were sort of blue collar, not afraid to work, who knew that they had to work to get better. Like it just, it didn't come easy for anybody at Lowell. Um, and then you foster that with a, a program and a coaching staff that developed really, really good teams. So we had success, right? Cause you can have all that. And then, you know, how the, if the chips just don't fall, like things can go sideways, we had success. So there was motivation um, guys wanted to train. So it was very much like Mike talking about how he wanted minor league players when he started, because those guys were motivated to train and he could help them develop into, you know, players that would kind of create a name for himself. Same thing at Lowell for me, like our guys wanted to train and wanted to get better. And that's not always the case. Um, especially with, you know, sometimes with higher end talent, it's just that that's more of a struggle that really helped me develop a name for myself and allowed me to really, to, 
I think to get really good at my craft because I got to really push the envelope in a program where the coach bought into what I did, supported me, the players bought in the culture that we developed was one where guys wanted to get better and wanted to train. And so that helped me kind of develop myself as a coach and, and probably helped me create a name for myself in the field a little bit. Um, and then, you know, at the NHL level, it's, it is different, right? Um, it's, you have a lot of, if you're a good team, you have a lot of, you know, blue chip players and first and second round draft pick guys and not everybody, but the personalities are different, but the role is also different. The job is different. It's not as much about development. It's about optimization. Um, so the whole job as a strength coach in, in the NHL is very, very different from the college setting. One thing I will say is uh, I don't think you give yourself enough credit because I've been, you know, as you know, three colleges, three different strength coaches. Um, and yes, I think that we had, like you said, those guys that had chips on their shoulder and wanted to be there and wanted to get better. But the way that you ran that gym and the respect that you gave to everybody, but also expected back from the players to you, I think really helped create that gym culture. Because to be honest, as a freshman, I don't know how, like when the senior guys were there, when you were there, it, when you were in the gym, like you weren't messing around. We were all stretching together at the same time. We were foam rolling at the same time on the bikes, the gel, like it was all so organized and so coordinated that if you were out of place, like you, you'd look like a sore thumb. And then you with, you know, the respect for yourself and the team and getting better would say, get out of the gym and go tell Norm why you're not in my gym anymore. Where I've been around places where it's kind of like guys are playing sewer ball while other guys are trying to work out and no one's really saying anything. So I don't think you give yourself enough credit. I think that we did have good people and good character guys there, but I think it was you that started to create that culture that ultimately sustained through the whole entire time that you were there. Well, I appreciate that. It means a lot. It is mostly because I could say, Hey, go tell Norm why you're not in here. And he had my back. Cause if you don't have, and in, in all honesty, like that is it, it. It's, it's, I joke, but it's so true. Like in my field, in my space, like if you don't have support in the college setting, if you don't have support from the coach, it doesn't matter in the pro setting. It's, you know, it's the GM and the coach, if they're not on board or they're not going to hold players accountable, um, then it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Right. So there is a big piece of that. I'm, I'm, I'm glad that that, um, that was the impression that I, I had on you, but a lot of other people are involved in creating that culture as well. For sure. Yeah. And I've seen it the other way too, where the, you know, the head coach doesn't really trust in what the strength coach is doing or, doesn't really care to, to gain knowledge about what he's doing to understand that he's really helping their players. But I mean, we kind of touched on it here a little bit, but as a strength coach, your role is different than a team coach. You're a leader, but you're kind of also a friend where the guys can kind of joke around and stuff. So how do you keep the gym a fun place, uh, but also an environment where everyone's putting in maximum effort? Yeah. Um, again, you know, it's different in the college and pro setting. Um, I think, you know, I, I think in the college, College setting, like I, I, like you kind of talked about, like I really strove to develop a culture where um, everything, everything we did had a reason. Um, so I, that's a big piece at both levels. Like I think it's really important for athlete buy-in to understand, like I'm never, and I make it a point to tell my players, like I'm never going to ask you to do work for work's sake. Because there's, you know, whether it's college, whether it's pro, like you're not there as an athlete to be, you know, a, a weight room all american like you're there to play hockey some guys like the gym more than others everybody knows that you know there's a necessity to it um but if i'm just throwing stuff at you to make you tired and sore like at some point as an athlete you kind of get sick of that right so always having a reason 
always having a why. And if I would always say, like, if I can't tell you why this is important for you as a hockey player, like, we'll get rid of it. We'll take take it out. And I think that earns a lot of respect. Um, but I do think it's also important to keep the bigger picture in mind, right? Um, it's hockey. It's training. It's everybody's, you know, at the NHL, it's everyone's livelihood. It's still a game. And there still needs to be some fun. And I can tell you, like, whether you're a college athlete, a pro athlete, like, the days are long. The season is a grind. And if it's, if it's just, you know, angry faces and misery all the time, like human nature that gets turned off. So it's important to, to try to keep things light um, when that's appropriate. And, and again, I think it goes back to relationships and getting to know people and being able to foster good communication, good, you know, conversations between people. I think as an athlete right now with social media, you're kind of taught to like look through the fluff. So like online, you might see like some crazy workout where a guy is squatting on a yoga ball. It's like, well, how is that actually going to help me on the ice? So I think that, you know, being able to explain, like you said, how this is going to affect you. And then also being humble enough to remove things. If you have that discussion like I know uh, Garrett's goalie coach, I work with him in the summer and every drill he does, he tells the goalie how it's going to affect them in a game setting. And then he also tells them, you know, I had a discussion with one of my NHL draft picks about why he does things this way. And I've changed it because of that. And I think that, you know, a coach admitting that he doesn't know everything and he is willing to have a conversation, especially, you know, at the college and pro level where you're training with adults, right? You're not training with kids. Like, they also could have really good values. I think that that's something that gets you a lot of respect. Yeah. And I think it's really important. It's, and it's interesting, like at the pro level, there is more give and take because guys have, you know, you talk about you're training adults, you're really training adults in the NHL, like in college, you're, you're adults, but you're, you're in college, right? At the NHL level, like you might be working with a 35 year old man and what he has done, you know, take my, my role now, it's my first year here. We've got guys that on our team that have been in the league for 14 or 15 years. Like, who am I to come in and tell you, uh, no, that's, that's not the right way to do things, even though that's what you've done for 14 years that's helped you maintain that. So there's more of a give and take, um, at the pro level. Um, and I think, again, I, to your point, I, I do think it buys credibility for me, um, to be able to say, you know what, I, I don't know. Uh, I'll figure out, I'll go find out the answer or uh, um, that's really interesting that you do it that way. That's not how I would do it, but if that's what's worked for you in the past, like let's make sure that, you know, that we're doing what we, you're doing what you need to do to keep things going. And again, that's how you buy trust. And then maybe you can sprinkle in a little bit of something down the road with that guy. It's a little more the way you think things should be. And then you gain some trust and you can sprinkle in some more, but it's a, you kind of got to play the long game uh, in the NHL. Me and Sean always talk about how, you know, with social media nowadays, like people are never posting their failures or the bad things that happen. So from an outsider looking in on, uh, you know, your profession and what you've done the last however many years that you've been a strength and conditioning coach, uh, it would look like everything has gone as planned and is and has been perfect. Uh, but at one point during your career, you thought you had a job in the bag and it unfortunately fell through when you and your family were essentially left homeless for three months. Can you take us through this situation? Yeah, um, you're hundred percent right. Like what you see on, you know, Instagram or Twitter is everybody's best day and the best filter, right? You don't, you don't see the, 
you don't see the rocky road. Um, yeah, so that that situation was tough. I mean, it, that's you know, you kind of laid it out. I thought that I had, um, I thought that I had a job lined up in the in the NHL at the time. I was I was at Lowell, and um, you know, in hindsight, like I I didn't read the tea leaves correctly, so it's on me. But um, communication wasn't great, and thought I had a job, and then you know, job fell through and the house was already sold and was left, you know, homeless, like not, you know, we weren't living in the car, but we were couch surfing with, you know, two kids and a cat. And I was still, you know, fortunately I was still, you know, working at Lowell. Um, so I still had a job, but, you know, was commuting an hour and a half, two hours from, you know, friends places and, and moving to a different, you know, house and trying to figure things out. And, yeah, you're right. Like it's, it's, uh, the road is a lot rockier than what you see when you just kind of look at the resume, um, and the stops that I've had along the way, but there's been a lot of, you know, there's that situation, which was obviously tough. There's been a lot of, you know, thinking you're getting a job, not getting a job, um, you know, new boss, new administrator, changing the department, you know, not worrying about getting fired and let go just because, you know, new person's in town and, um, and that's, that's just kind of the reality. Like that's the, the ugly side of sports, I guess, and uh, the reality of it, but um, people don't necessarily see, see those things on social media. Have you been able to, you know, return the favor since then and kind of, you know, help someone else out who is in a rough time? Cause I know we talk about the importance of a social group all the time and uh, how you need people to help pick you up. Cause there are going to be down days. Um, have you had the chance to, you know, give back, to the people who helped you out? I, I certainly hope so. Um, it's probably a question for other people, but um, yeah, I, anytime I've, I've been able to, you know, help somebody, help somebody else get a job or, or put in a good word or, um, you know, just lend a, you know, an arm around the shoulder for somebody when they're having a tough day. Um, I certainly hope that that's the kind of person that, you know, my friends and colleagues see me as, because that's certainly something that I think is really important. And then uh, kind of the last stop we want to make here is you, you authored or, or wrote a book. So can you tell us about the book and why you decided to write it? Yeah. So um, a few years ago, I co-authored a book uh, called Intent. Um, it's about, uh, um, it's basically about how to implement a sports science program, regardless of budget. So, um, you know, as a, you know, as a strength and conditioning coach, um, sports science is sort of a, an integrated arm of the field, so to speak. And it's really like the use of, of various tools and technologies to sort of better measure and understand training and performance. Um, and sometimes it's the job of the strength coach in, in some places, like when I was in New Jersey, it was a separate job. And here in Arizona, it's a part of my bigger job. But um, the book is really about um, how to apply the, the principles around some of this stuff um, to, uh, to your setting, if you're a strength coach or sports scientist regardless of budget. So we kind of give examples of, you know, if you're at the NHL level and unlimited budget, um, you might use force plates to evaluate uh, jumping performance and power output. And, and then you use that information to adjust how you train different athletes or monitor for fatigue um, and things like that. If you're at the high school level or small college, like you might not have the money for that, um, but maybe you have enough money for a, a $500 jump mat. And that's how, this is how you can accomplish some of the same goals uh, and things that you would do with a force plate on a lesser budget, or maybe you don't even have that. And all you have is, you know, the old vertical jump chalk on the wall, kind of touch the wall as high as you can. 
okay, from a principal standpoint, if that's all you can do, how can you still use that information um, in sports science to make more informed decisions? So that's kind of what the, what the book is, is all about. In my experience, I think that that's the number one thing strength coaches do is uh, they have to be creative and apply what they want to get done, no matter what the situation is. You know, from the very start, we talked about the pandemic and how guys have different resources. And uh, Garrett and I train with uh, John Eng in the summer. And, you know, it doesn't matter where we are. I'm, I'm down in Knoxville right now. And he's like, hey, like, what equipment do you have? Do you need a program? And it's cool to see how creative you guys are. Um, you know, even not with the actual lifts, but now in measuring them, depending on what circumstances you have, like, I think it's cool how you apply your knowledge, but you also have so much creativity. In it. Yeah, yeah, you definitely you have to be, you gotta be crafty in this field. That's for sure. Crafty and me and Shauna mentioned it too. It seems like every strength and conditioning coach is just kind of, they have that like dog fight mentality. And it takes me back when you were telling your story of uh, you know, getting cut and you didn't necessarily want to quit, uh, but you didn't really have a place to go. And you just kind of figured it out and kept going through the process. Every strength coach I've ever met seems to kind of have that chip on their shoulder and have that dogfight mentality. Uh, and also you guys never take credit for anything. Like every strength coach I have where I'm like, you know, thank you so much for everything you've done for me. They're like, I haven't done anything. Like it's all you, I swear that like the same personality dogfight and won't take, won't, won't take credit for a lot of things. Um, would you agree with that? Or would you say that, uh, there's a mixture of personality in the field? Uh, I would say most coaches and most good coaches probably have that personality and that background. I think, you know, to, to become a strength coach, like you probably at some point, like I would think you liked training. And if you really liked training, you saw value in that, like you probably weren't super talented. And so you value the um, importance and you understand how you can actually develop physically and how that can help you as an athlete. Um, and then I, I think, I think it's a tough job that, you know, it's not that there aren't egos in the field, but, um, I think the best people in the field are in it for the service of others. And if that's, if that's what you believe and that's who you are, then I think you've, you know, it's hard, to, it's hard for me to take credit for an athlete's success. Um, Cause all I do is tell them, you know, which dumbbells to pick up at the end of the day, they got to put the work in. Right. hundred percent. Well, Dev, we can't thank you enough for coming on and we, we wish you uh, a safe trip and uh, best of luck the rest of the year. Uh, and we'll be following. Awesome. Thanks guys. Had a, had a lot of fun talking. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is Adversity underscore University. Our Twitter handle is Adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly. So stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.